I could see the suspected shooter, Delano, a guy of 22 years old. And what I saw was mostly emptiness. I mean, there is a 100% detachment of any type of emotion. These are broken, lost lives. I've never thought the possibility that the message of the wire could be true for the Netherlands. Now I'm starting to think it is. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The trial of two men charged with the murder of celebrity Dutch journalist Peter Or de Vries has heard harrowing text messages sent between the hit team and an unnamed overlord who ordered the shooting in broad daylight on an Amsterdam street. The daughter of de Vries later faced down the duo and in a victim impact statement told the 22-year-old accused of being the gunman who killed her father that she was a victim, just like his own child, who now faces losing his parent with life sentences demanded for both by state prosecutors. In court, journalist Jan Meus, a colleague of mine from the Netherlands and someone who knew Peter personally, watched the harrowing scenes. And today, he considers the bigger picture of such a senseless and brazen murder. He tells me about the criminal at the very top of the ruthless Macro Mafia, Ridwan Taji, the business partner of Daniel Kinahan, who police suspect is behind the De Vries murder, and those of a lawyer and a brother of a prosecution witness. He describes the fear that surrounds Taji's organisation and how he has challenged the very foundations of the Netherlands. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. I haven't spoken to you in a while, Jan, so very nice to have you on again because I've been sort of following developments in the Netherlands with interest. I'm amazed at the speed in which these two suspects, Delano G and Camille E, are before the courts and you're looking as if you're going to get a conclusion uh, in the, the case of the murder of the journalist Peter Ordevries in July, which will just be a year since the terrible tragedy um, on Amsterdam streets. It feels like the other day we were talking about it when it only happened. Um, I suppose just start by telling us again, for those who don't recall, who Peter Ordevries was and his significance as a, a journalist and a, an advocate. Uh, hi, nice to be back. Um, who was Peter de Vries? He was uh, a crime reporter for 40 years. Initially, for uh, he was writing, and later on in his career, he started to make uh, television shows. Uh, he wrote about organized crime, most notably uh, the kidnap. Uh, in the 80s of uh, the Dutch beer mogul Freddy Heineke and his driver. And that was his initial claim to fame for Peter. Um, later on, he, he became more acclaimed for um, making programs and trying to help people, for instance, to find um, children that were that had died and they never would be able to recover uh, the police was never able to recover the bodies or um, you know they were never able to find uh, 
the killer or the the rapist of of uh, young children, for instance. So there's this one case of uh, a young kid, Nikki Verstappen, who was uh, found dead in uh, the south of the country uh, uh, 20, 25 years ago. And uh, his parents, in the end, came to Peter to to see if he could help them to solve uh, the the death of their young son. And the the family of of this kid, uh, Nikki, um, uh, was one of the many who went to to Peter to to ask for his help. And um, he had a a special website and he had had a whole network of people helping him uh, to do this. And what he managed to do in the end is he managed to convince the police to do a special DNA test in the region of where uh, the most the most like uh, likely region of where the suspected kidnapper and killer of that young kid uh, could be found and with that dna investigation they eventually actually quite recently they found uh, the person who is now convicted in the higher court for the kidnap and his role in the death of this kid nikki Verstappen. and i think that case sort of summarizes very well what the role of of Peter de Vries was in in the Netherlands. So he was a journalist, um, a very good one, but he was also um, really using his his position in the media and his his well-known name uh, in Mm. the media to help people who were looking for justice to find justice. And if we... um, Take one step, he, you know. He didn't get lost in his celebrity, Jan. He seemed to hold his values throughout his life and use, I suppose, that celebrity for the good of others. Yeah, that, that's 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 a perfect summary. And uh, for German TV, they uh, they the, the Dutch royalty is is uh, very popular in Germany. And I said, you know, he's as well known as the king and as popular as the queen. Mm. And uh, that's really what he was, but he was also uh, two feet on the ground, uh, and I, I've I've spent some time with him uh, during writing about uh, another criminal, Willem Holleder, who was involved in that kidnapping of, of the beer mogul Heineken. And um, when you were with him, he was constantly recognized on the streets. He would get uh, phone calls and emails, and I was sitting down at one point. And then this waitress was coming up to him and said, oh, yeah, my colleague, you know, she said she saw you sitting here and she said, weren't you going to write him? And uh, you should go to him now. And 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 she started this whole story, how she was divorced and she had financial problems. And if she could help him with uh, her, with uh, her, uh, her abusing husband. Mm. And I mean, for me personally, I would I would go completely crazy if people would would. Uh, come up to me all the time. But he stayed really calm, listened to her politely and said, you know what, if you uh, just go on my website, peteredevries.nl, and uh, if you just write a short email, um, I will come back to you. And the thing is, people would do that and he would respond within 24 or 48 hours. So he was very, very, uh, uh, you know, 
feet mm. on the ground. And this is also, if, if we take it one step further to, you know, why was he killed in the end? During the trial or the first day of the trial, uh, the prosecutors clearly stated that they do not think that he was killed because of his public role as a journalist, but he was killed because he was also the confidant of um, uh, a deal witness, what we call a crown witness, in the trial against uh, Hidewan Tahi. And uh, that, that deal witness, his name is Nabil Bey. And before uh, Peter became his confidant, he had lost his lawyer and his uh, one of his brothers. Uh, they were both shot and killed after it became public that he was a deal witness in this trial. And um, the prosecutors said out loud, you know, is it thinkable that these three deaths, the death of the brother, the death of the lawyer, and the death of the confidant and advisor of the crown witness are really a coincidence? Mm. And they said, we don't have the proof that uh, it is related to the crown witness, but there is really no other scenario thinkable than mm -hmm. that it is. So what they are saying there, you know, uh, euphemistically is we think Hidewan Tahi is behind uh, these murders, or at least the organization of Hidewan Tahi is behind these murders. Um, and why did uh, Peter do this? There was a question that a lot of uh, people asked him, also a lot of colleagues asked him, because, you know, from a journalist, he became an advisor. And those are obviously uh, two different roles that do not combine well. And in the end, I asked it also to his son, Royce. And Royce said, you know, um, Peter had a hard time to see injustice. And he thought that what was happening to this crown witness, Nabil Bey, and speci specifically his family, he thought that was a great injustice. And he found that it was his responsibility to use his uh, power, his, his media uh, uh, power to um, see if he could help this family and this deal witness, Namil Bey. And um, he did it knowingly what, what the risks were, what it would mean. But um, Royce told me that, you know, there was no way he could not do it. And um, for me, it's, it's, it's very hard to get a grasp on that, you know, to, to put yourselves in, in very dangerous waters, to uh, fight for uh, the injustice of, of, or the perceived injustice of other people. But that's what he did. And, you know, you've painted a picture of him as a very warm and caring individual as well as obviously being, you know, top of his game professionally as a journalist and then as an advisor and as a campaigner for families. Um, he seems to have been hugely successful. But the story you told there about the coffee shop and mm -hmm. the woman coming up to him, he was obviously somebody who wasn't carried away with his celebrity, if you know what that means. It's maybe an Irish phrase. It's somebody who just gets so obsessed with themselves. He still managed to keep his feet on the ground and see injustices for others. And I suppose was true to himself and, and why he started doing it all. Um, I think he was 
or he certainly was told that there was a threat on his life by uh, the police in the Netherlands because he was advising Nabil B. Mm-hmm. And um, he, you know, there's questions still remaining there about what protections should have been afforded to him. He didn't want his whole life to be taken over by being surrounded by police all the time. He couldn't do his job. But, um, you know, I've spoken before with, with Saskia Bellman about this. And certainly here in Ireland, we see criminals who don't particularly want protection as such from police, but they get it because they're still very visibly outside their homes, knowing what a threat they're under and knowing that I suppose civilians could get caught up in any sort of shooting that would would go on. Has there been criticism of the police in the Netherlands or questions asked of them that they allowed him just carry on with his business? Yeah, there is there is um, criticism because uh, everything you said is, mm. is is very true. There is one stunning detail that in the end, uh, uh, together with, with colleagues of Der Spiegel from, from Germany, uh, we, we discovered that was a week before he was shot. Um, there was a warning uh, because uh, the people of the parking garage where he used to park his car, uh, which is next to a television studio in uh, in the center of Amsterdam, where he uh, where he was on TV almost weekly. Um, he um, there was they they saw somebody following him, and the stunning fact is that that those people from that parking garage they called the police, they called the producers of of that TV show uh, RTL Boulevard, it's called. And they also warned uh, uh, Peter. And um, it it wasn't taking it wasn't taken as serious as it should have been. Yeah. By either uh, party, I think. Um, the fact is, we saw during the trial we saw images of this person following him in that street, and uh, according to prosecutors. This is the, the Polish suspect, Kamil A, who is walking there. He, he disputes that, but that's, that's a different story. But um, there was a lot of criticism um, about, you know, how he could have been there so openly uh, mm-hmm. without any, any sort of protection. Uh, now there is there there is a, a, a dispute between the people who know Peter and, and the Dutch government. And uh, what they say is it wasn't, I mean, he didn't want, you know, the full protection package that, you know, you have to hand over your, your, your calendar a week in advance so they can organize all this protection. He didn't want that. But there is something between the full package and mm. no package. And, you know, because he was such a public figure and he was on, on television almost weekly, uh, people know, could know where he was. Because you know all these 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 shows, they announce their their guest, their lineup of their guests on Twitter and on. So um, it was so easy to find him in public, and there is a lot of questions about that. Also, because of of the two uh, previous uh, uh, victims, uh, uh, you know, in relationship to the to, to Nabil Bay. So what what's happened uh, since? The, the death of, of, of Peter is that there is a, a special investigation 
by um, uh, yeah, an, uh, an established institution that, that uh, investigates all kinds of security and security-related uh, issues mm. in society, from you know food poisoning to to uh, 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 crashes in public transportation, for instance. Yeah. And they are so they're they're a completely um, independent authority in the Netherlands, and they will investigate the circumstances surrounding the death of Peter, but also those two other victims and all the issues regarding uh, the security measures that were taken and not taken in mm. relation to these three people. Um, and that is a, a report that is, you know, that report, the conclusions of that, that investigation are highly um, anticipated, highly, uh, we're all waiting for that to, to come out because uh, it's going to give us some answers to questions that, that are so obvious that they really need better answers that we have now. Certainly. And look, it'll be in hindsight for Peter's family, but going forward with the threat of organized crime that exists, I think it's important to get to the bottom of it, obviously. Mm -hmm. Of course, the RTL Boulevard show he was on, it was July 6, 2021. And he had appeared on that, as was previously advertised, and as he did every week, and he walked the same route back to the car. Like, from... A point of view, I often think you're probably a little bit more highbrow than I have been in my journalistic career. But as a tabloid reporter, sometimes it's the photograph we want to get, you know, that we can we can build the story around mm. the photograph of a criminal, etc. I mean, for me, sometimes it's it is similar akin to stalking and you try and work out where you're best placed in order to get that photograph. Mm -hmm. And while our guys use cameras, the same job really is done within the underworld, but they've a gun. So they're looking to place themselves in the position that they are most likely to, to see their target. And for me, like coming at that from a journalistic point of view, if I wanted to doorstep Peter, that would have been the most obvious thing to do. I knew he was going to be on the television show that night. I would have known probably at that point, okay, well, he parks his car somewhere down, so he's likely to walk down the road. You'd know exactly what time. It just mm -hmm. seems to be an absolute no-brainer to me um, that that was a, an area where the police certainly could have and should have had some protection, some visibility on the streets when he was there. He clearly didn't want them sitting in his car if he was going off to meet a contact. But, you know, I think probably, and it'll be interesting to see what's in the report, but the lack of proactivity of the police, I think, given the um, situation in the Netherlands with organised crime is just quite stunning. Just that's coming from an outsider point of view, you know. I totally agree with you. And uh, to make it even more uh, confusing, uh, Peter had an arrangement with the producers of, uh, of RTL Boulevard that, they, that he could drive up to the studio and that a security person or a parking person would take over his car and drive it to the garage. And the same thing, you know, when coming out, they would mm. pick up his car and they'd drive it to the studio. That's still... Uh, then it then there is still a risk of of you know that moment that you get in and out of the car, but the risk is certainly uh, the time frame is certainly uh, more complicated. But um, at one point his car was damaged, 
And then he refused anybody else to drive his car. So he was also, I mean, he, you know, he was, I mean, it's a very understandable characteristic for somebody so successful as him. Mm. He was also stubborn. You know, he had his ways and um, it's very, very, very hard to understand why this happened at that place. And, uh, and I, I think in the end, there is uh, some responsibility for himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he had to know better than he acted, than the way he acted. But I agree with you uh, because of the, the known threat to anybody linked to that, that, that uh, deal witness in, in the Marengo case, the police should have been more proactive, specifically because they were warned. Mm-hmm. They were warned mm-hmm. a week ahead. He's being followed. And he you know, he was a high-profile person, so obviously there was he, he got a lot of attention on the street. But still, you know, given given the circumstances, it's it's hard to understand why this there was no not more security than there was. And the actual um shooting of, of Peter mm-hmm. was was just so brazen and public, and he you know, he was he died nine days, of course, after he was shot, but he was he was shot dead on the street. There was a video that went around of somebody with a camera phone um, as he was lying there and as people were trying to help him and obviously waiting for the, the ambulance to come. In the meantime, the state will say that Delano G and Camille E one a Polish man and the other Dutch, am I right? That they were on the they were on the run. They had carried out this crime, according to the state, and they were driving along a motorway, arrested within an hour of the shooting. Um, yeah, that, that's one of the other big questions that is, is why, uh, you know, you could say it was obvious that they could do it there because he, it was out in the open. Everybody knew he was there. Everybody saw him walking there. Uh, but at the same time, it's an area really in, in the heart of the center of town. Um, a lot of uh, restaurants, cafes, uh, bars, uh, a big shopping street, um, very busy, very open, tons of security cameras. So we saw footage from five, six angles of him walking, of the suspects walking there. Actually, of the actual shooting, there was, I mean, it was from far away but there was a clear uh, camera uh, images of how the suspected shooter uh, jumped up behind him. And at one point you see him walking away in this light suit. And then a guy in a black uh, clothes jumps behind him. And like a second later, you see him fall. Um, So it was, and you know, um, for anybody who has been, who has visited the center of Amsterdam, it's not an easy place to get out of with a car. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's busy. The streets are narrow. There's a lot of traffic lights there. You can't just easily pass people. So I always think that, you know, that it, it has to send a message, you know, that the fact that it happened so in, a, in such a public play uh, place in broad daylight, even though it was seven 30, um, Apparently, it's part of the messaging, as well as, you know, the, the films of what happened that, that, you know, I received the first images within, 
within an hour, within 45 minutes. Um, and yes, there was, you know, since, since the smartphone, there is always films of these uh, incidents, but so quick, mm. that was, that was really uh, surprising. Um, at the same time, I think it was good policing because they managed to, you know, to get that footage really quickly. There was uh, a lot of uh, witnesses that gave description of the car and maybe even uh, the number plates. So they, they, uh, were able to arrest him almost, um, you know, within an hour. Um, I mean, um, and all the evidence was in that car. I mean, I've I've covered many many of these these trials, and I've never seen a trial with so much evidence uh, as in this case. Uh-huh. So in that sense, I mean, it's 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 a shut and closed case. And and what we're waiting for is, you know, will they get a, a 30 year or a lifetime sentence? That's really the only answer that we're still waiting for. Um, so do you see that as taking it from, I mean, you've a, you've a personal, you had a personal relationship, I suppose, with Peter. So it's difficult to um, sometimes, I'm sure, look on this case and be more clinical about it. But do you see that as being hitmen? without, um, well, firstly, under a huge amount of pressure from somebody directing this, that this has to be done. Uh, Secondly, you know, in many cases, a hitman will escape on a motorbike if they're in a situation like that, that they can move quicker through the traffic. And thirdly, to have not got rid of the evidence. Are they sloppy? Are they amateurs? Are they, have they a background? Have they done this before? And again, we'll just say that they are still suspects. They haven't actually been convicted, but what does the state believe about them? What you see in these cases, in in a number of these cases, is that um, the the killing itself seems to be planned fairly well. Um, But the, the actual shooters don't seem to be very experienced people. So in this case, you know, the, 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 the suspected shooter is a guy of 22, has a small criminal past, a few uh, little details, but nothing as, you know, uh, uh, an organized uh, uh, um, underworld killing uh, involvement. Uh, also for Camille A, no big organized crime ties or anything like that. The evidence there is messaging on that on that phone they found in the car that uh, indicates they were under a lot of pressure to do this. Um, So it seems to me that the people who who execute these these, uh, killings, that they are sort of hired uh, because of who they are and what they are. So they are not hired because they're very experienced and they will get away. They're hired because they're indispensable. And, and we've seen this because, you know, all those three killings uh, in relationship to the, the crown witness, all the shooters were all found. Um, they, and they, they, they were not, you know, that these were not professional, professional hitmen. And, you know, we all know how much money is, is going around, floating around, around drugs, criminals, they can pay for it. But, I, I can not think of any other reason 
than that they are really hired because of who they are and that they're indispensable and that they don't realize what they're really getting themselves into or they are forced to get you know, into this because there's also indications that the two uh, suspects were had, had gambling debts. So there's always... Uh, for mm-hmm. me, it's always a you know a market as something might be off, um, and um, I, God knows why. If you would want to do this, why you would not want to hire professional killers that would get away with it? And apparently, this, I mean, there is a pattern there, and and there has to be a reason for it. And I think, um, I think, yeah, it's their way to to tell to all of us fuck you yeah yeah I, there, there is no other way i can think about this and so behind all this obviously and abil b is the chief witness in the the trial against Ridu and taji and 16 other members of his gang yeah who are facing a big big trial called marengo and it is relating to a number of gangland hits now Ridu and taji the man at the very top of this gang, who we have been writing about here because of his links to Daniel Kinahan. Uh, we're told they were business partners, that they together with others formed the a European super cartel. He was in attendance at Daniel Kinahan's wedding in the Burj Al Arab in 2017. And also there was a peculiar story when um, lawyers for him traveled to Dubai, were placed under surveillance by the police and they were, you know, they had picked up some uh, phone uh, evidence from them that they were going to meet the boss of bosses and the guy who turned up was actually Daniel Kinahan at the hotel. So very strong connections there. But Taji has is sitting in prison and you know, essentially, the the judge has said that the that he believes that there's no way that these three murders cannot be linked. It's too coincidental. So that's going pretty far in in saying that he is there in the ether as a suspect for directing these murders. He wants to get at Nabil B because he doesn't want him to give evidence. He has. Um, Certainly police would believe that uh, his brother was killed so as he would stop giving evidence. His lawyer, Dirk Worsham, was killed so as he would stop giving evidence. And now Peter was murdered last year for the same reason. But he is a seriously dangerous character, somebody that I don't think we come upon very often um, in life and, and in the sort of the underworld he stands out even amongst thieves, basically. Um, he is in, is it Vucht prison that he's, he's in, in, in the high security prison? Yeah, he's, he's what, he's in, in the closest of what we have to what the Americans call a supermax. Yeah. So he is in a, I mean, it's, it, it's a completely isolated uh, uh, regime. He has no contact with other um, um Inmates, uh, so he's he's isolated in uh, the prison. The prison has you know extra all kinds of extra physical security. So breaking out of that uh, building is is would be extremely complicated. Um, and there is a whole protocol of of how he can 
uh, have contact with family, lawyers, etc. And it basically means that he has no physical contact with anybody. Mm. So every meeting he has is uh, behind glass, behind a glass wall. Uh, all the phone calls or meetings he has with family are uh, recorded and if necessarily translated. So he is as isolated as you can isolate somebody uh, in within the Dutch and the European legal framework, I think. Uh, and still, he managed to uh, get a nephew who is a lawyer to come to his prison as his lawyer. And they were um, exchanging messages uh, by writing on a notepad and taking pictures of those messages. And then his lawyer, who was allowed to have an iPad, would... Uh, take those messages and uh, give them to people outside. Um, and um, so even though all the efforts were made to isolate him, they, they, he managed to break through that isolation. And it says something about his resilience, about his intelligence, and about his willingness to go as far as to sacrifice um, a nephew uh, to further his personal case. And um, so, and also, you know, because yesterday was the first uh, day of, of the final plea of the, of the prosecutors uh, building up to uh, the demand for uh, punishment uh, in uh, 10, yeah, it takes 10 days. It's going to be end of June when, when we know that. And um, the case is about six murders and the prosecutors uh, uh, gave a few details that were, you know, stunning in, in their simplicity. Uh, you know, where we, we talked about, you know, how the family of Peter de Vries was, was allowed to speak during the trial. In this trial, the, none of the family members of the six victims dared to come forward and to, they even didn't dare to sit in the courthouse. They were listening in anonymously somewhere uh, during, a, you know, a, 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 a live connection, but they were not, they were, they didn't dare to come there. They didn't dare to file a request to speak during this trial. And they didn't uh, dare to claim damages, which is also legally possible in the Netherlands. Um, and according to the prosecutors, it says a lot about uh, what this trial is really about. And they also think there was a second detail, and we know this, you know this, I know this, you know, talking to the police in the, in the criminal world is a no-no. So basically, the six murders we're talking about, they're all about whether or not somebody has spoken to the police or was willing to speak to the police. And because they did, or because they, the people thought that they were going to, they were killed. And so, you know, revenge and sending the message, uh, if you talk, you die. Uh, that's one of the motives uh, in this whole trial. So you mean of the six murders that are central to the Marengo trial, yeah. a number of them were of his own? No, or people that, um, that were... Um, that had been called on as a witness in a right. trial against a group that was... Um, Mm -hmm. Working for him, there was um, 
people who he thought were talking to rivals, and there was um, people who had talked to the police as informers. And in all of so the six murders are all in one of those varieties of of, of uh, roles, but um, the statement was, you know, here is uh, a criminal environment that says if you in what way uh, talk about us to the police, to rivals, to others, or we think you are planning to talk to others, we're going to shut you down. And then there is this, there is this cynical event that at one point, one guy was found himself so caught up in the middle of this, of this violence that he said, you know, I have to step forward, even though he was a part of this group, but because let's not forget that Nabil Bey, uh, Will has been accused of involvement in three um, uh, murders and a number of attempts. So he was not, you know, a, an a innocent. Mm. Um, but, and then the cynicism is that, you know, somebody stands up and then again, if they can't get to him, they get to the people around him. And that's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really, um, yeah, it's it, there's only one word I can find to, and that's chilling. It's really chilling to see this, and then also knowing that you know there's a number of of colleagues um, under police protection, twenty four hours a day, because of the same uh, reason. It tells you in what kind of climate we're living in, and and what kind of suspects we're dealing with. It seems like to me that Taji, and wherever. It's coming from because he started out as an ordinary street dealer like many others and and obviously then gained power and clearly has a huge ego, etc. But he almost has crossed a line within gangland. He has changed the rules there. And then further from that, he has attempted to change the rules in a law-abiding society like the Netherlands. He has literally taken on the state. He has taken on and, uh, you know, is suspected rather of, of being involved in, in directing the murder of a lawyer, the brother of a witness, and now, um, you know, a very, very significant journalist and um, fighter of victims' rights. And... It is frightening that somebody like that can just come out of nowhere, which is really, he's one of these, one of the same as our own Kinahan grouping that they would have started off as street dealers, you know, dealing the landings in Oliver Bond flats and literally within, okay, two decades, we are now being told by the US Treasury that they are billionaires and, you know, um, whatever people said for so long about Daniel Kinahan not having any convictions, I think the uh, the announcements by the the U.S. Treasury have put paid to all that. But nonetheless, it's it's that appetite for the product that's making them rich, uh, largely from middle class working society that is handing out a hundred quid at a weekend that is turning these guys into people that are actually taking on the very foundations of the state we, we like to live in. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's, it's a true observation. And I think it's also a scary and, 
and as I said, chilling observation, and it tells you something of the the power and the money behind um, uh, international drug smuggling. And um, I've been I've been writing about this for now what six seven years, and uh, uh, you know jokingly been called. Uh, I, I used to be a stock exchange reporter, and now I'm I'm a I'm a you know a cocaine uh, price reporter. Um, and it's all related to that. And, and you know, I don't think this is the right moment to get into a discussion about whether we should, you know, uh, free all drugs or whether we should be a lot more stricter. But what it does show you is um, this case and, 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 and many of the other cases is that I think uh, all of us, law enforcement, journalists, uh, politicians, we have underestimated the power of money behind uh, international drug smuggling. And I think we're going to see some revelations in, in the not so far future about how big this really is. And then, you know, we, we, um, what I've done in the past is, uh, you know, on the basis of what is uh, intercepted in, in the harbors of Rotterdam and, and, and Antwerp and Hamburg, you know, you can sort of make these like uh, uh, calculations on the back of a cigarette package or a, a cigar box, as we call it. You know, how much money is involved here? And uh, my calculation suggests that, you know, the, 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 the cocaine trade and the volume in terms of money is bigger than the value of the tropical fruit that they tend to hide the cocaine uh, uh, in. But I think uh, it's 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 a lot bigger. So, you know, you said that the Kinahans were millionaires. I think some of them are billionaires, and uh, of course they spend a lot of money, you know, on on all kinds of issues from security to clothes to to booze and women and all what have you. But I also think that we really really underestimate uh, the amount of money that is actually uh, being made and. When you say that and you look at a trial as what, what we're looking at now is that you have to know that, you know, there is a main suspect and um, uh, it's very likely that he will be convicted to uh, life in jail. Um, and there is a number of, of uh, people around him that will be uh, convicted to either life in jail or very long sentences. But there's also a lot of people still out there. and. Because of all that money, there is also a lot of uh, interest still out there. There is a, a lot of people who have an interest in, you know, either keep this uh, covered up or keep the business going because they make so much money. Um, so the vested interest of the people that we don't see, that's, I think that's the real threat, actually, uh, because um, uh, there is whether they're family or not, or whether they're you know youth friends or not, or whether they they know each other from the business. But the interest of the people who are not in the picture right now to keep this going, or at least to defend the the wealth they they have accrued over over time, is so big that there is a constant threat from that because they don't want to be uncovered. They they want to keep their lives as it is. Mm. And um, 
um, yeah, I think that's that's really scary, and and it 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 we need answers beyond you know trials like this and and convicting people to long sentences because this is not gonna uh, you know it's gonna uh, punish people who deserve punishment if if the judge finds what you know is accused what they're accused of is true, but it's not an answer to the problems we're facing. And that's sort of the, the, the yeah, that's the, that's the real scary part, I think. You know, you have this trial, it takes years of investigation, it takes years to, to come to a decent conclusion, and the real problem is actually not addressed. Mm, and the wheels continue to churn outside. I mean, the growing immorality of people within that world, I mean, some of the texts that were read out between Delan O.G., Camille E., and whoever as yet unidentified the director of that murder of Peter is. Um, I mean, those texts were disgusting, simply disgusting reading them. I mean, his life was worth nothing to them. It was, they wanted the, um, you know, you could almost sense the glee from them in, in, in telling whoever their overlord was that they had you know, got the bullets through him that he was dying. And, you know, they were looking for praise for this. And then you have Kelly DeVries, his uh, daughter in her, what essentially is a victim impact statement, asking them, you know, why did they kill her dad? They've taken her dad from her. Was it for money? Was it for, you know, what was it for? She just simply can't understand it. And I think a lot of us simply cannot understand that immorality that exists. Uh And yet... We are funding it. Yeah, yeah, and, and and you know what was fascinating to me. I mean, I'm sure you've been in, in courthouses as, as much as I have, and we in 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 the Dutch setting we always look at the back of a suspect because we watch you know the judge and the, and the prosecutors, and they are looking at the judges and the prosecutors, so we see their back. But during this victim impact statement, they were forced to turn around and look at Kelly and Royce de Vries. And by coincidence, I was, I was directly behind them. So when they were speaking, I could see the suspected shooter, Delano, a guy of 22 years old. Um, and what I saw was mostly emptiness. And if you relate that to the messages that that you know the police had found on that phone, um, I mean, it's so hard to describe these messages and to try to understand because it's it's you know it's so blunt uh, that you know and so that it's also I mean and so violent that in in a way they're also completely empty. There is I mean there is a hundred percent detachment of any type of emotion, um, and I saw that also when I was looking at this young man that there was hardly any or none emotion. So, and, and I mean, these are broken, lost lives. And I found, I found one of the things that Kelly said uh, in her uh, statement was very strong. It was, you know, I am a victim because I lost my father and um, my kid lost his grandfather. And at the same time, she said, but when you are convicted, you have a young kid 
And he is also lost his father. These are broken lives. And it's so hard to imagine that you're 22 and you're able to do this. And you have a kid at home and that kid has to find a way to deal with the history of his or her, I don't know if it's a boy or a girl, of, of, of the father. And I found it really strong from, from Kelly DeVries that she was able to say that, to say, you know, I've lost something, but you have lost almost as much and your family has lost almost as much as I have. Um, and it, but it also, and, I mean, it makes you wonder, you know, how are we going to deal with this type? I mean, how does a kid of 22, because for me, he's still a kid, how did he get there? How, how did he get there to do this? And um, I mean, I think that's one of the big, you know, you, we, we can talk about should we legalize or should we ban, you know, what, what do we do with illegal substances and such. But it's also, I think the, the more important question is how do we take, take care of our people? How do we try to prevent, you know, this kind of, of, of violence and 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 you know the the numbness of the people who who commit it. How do how can we try to prevent people from doing that? How can we try to prevent people from getting to the point that they find it necessary or feel themselves forced to do this? I think that's one of the one of the 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 most important questions that that we need an answer to and i think i mean we we need it in the netherlands but this is not a dutch problem this is this is you know a problem throughout western society and uh, i'm i'm not sure if, uh, if 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 your listeners are fans of of this police series from the uh, series from the united states it's called the wire mm. and it's it's now out for 20 years and i sometimes think that you know could it? I've, I've never thought the possibility that you know the the the, the context of, of the message of the wire could be true for the Netherlands, and now I'm starting to think it is, and it's and it's a very uh, disturbing uh, uh, image that is being portrayed there. And I do think that the Netherlands is just a representative of the rest of Europe. I just I think that you just happen to have a particular character that is you know, has remained there, you, you have your entry ports, but everywhere is experiencing the same problems with, with morals, really. And I often find, I don't know whether you've seen it as well, but sometimes if I'm looking at a young guy who's involved in organised crime, um, I'm looking at him, because they mainly are young guys, and they are, you know, their criminal activity is supporting the wider family, including the parents and the parents and sometimes even the grandparents are quite happy to sit back knowingly taking the money. And it's the money that's corrupting. It's, it's, it's something that's corrupting and poisoning our, uh, that, that money is, is, is poisoning in a whole, whole neighborhoods, whole towns, whole, mm. you know, parts of of of, uh, of communities and um, and that I, in the end you know that's the real that's that's the real uh, problem and what I find so what I also I mean I I don't have the answer to this question but is you know if you see so a case like Marengo I mean how much 
what we have now on the streets, we don't have enough armed police anymore. So if we, if I go to the courthouse next to the armed police, there's armed military because there's not enough people to, um, to uh, guard and, uh, uh, you know, uh, keep up the security that is unfortunately necessary in these type of cases. So what we have the army on the street because we don't have enough police anymore. And um, um, so it, it, it's a huge effort for, for uh, everybody, you know, this whole institution of, 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 uh, of, of the police, the courts, um, the, the prosecutor's office, uh, they're all stretched beyond their limits. And um, this is one guy. Mm. This is one uh one branch of this huge tree of organized crime, you know, dealing in all kinds of, of uh, illegal substances. Um, so this is a maximum effort, but we can, you know, we can do one of these every so often, but we need tens or hundreds of these to really impact. And I mean, Dutch police, because of, you know, this, these crypto investi investigations into crypto communication have been, extremely successful in the past few years in, in terms of prosecuting, you know, finding and prosecuting suspect people who are uh, uh, suspected of, of international drug smuggling. But still, the cocaine is coming in like it has never before. So it's, it just tells you how big this, this money-making machine is and how extremely difficult it is to, you know, to, 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 try, to, to try one group of people who are at the extreme violent end of this uh, huge drug industry. And I mean, that's, you know, we were talking about the big problems and this is one of the big problems that we as a society cannot really handle this type of violence, this type of, of money-making. And yeah, and you talk about the pressures on the systems, but I definitely recognize the pressures on the journalists too, because it, I really admire all of you being able to continue and to report on this and to continue working around this story, given all that's happened and the threats that exist against, you know, against people doing their job coming from a completely psychotic individual that you can have no reasoning with and who has proved, and certainly this gang have proved that they will again and again go out there and try and terrorize an entire country um, and do it in, in, you know, openly on a street. So, you know, I think the pressures are felt even further than just on the system, because psychologically it must have had a huge effect. And I do think that journalists sometimes when they're working on these stories in organized crime, they just have one uh, and they're, they're waiting till maybe the chapter closes on that. And I don't think they have it in them again to, to start on another grouping coming up. You have to move aside and, and let somebody else take over sometimes. Um, so I just want to say, we do recognize that certainly from this country, um, looking on and um, it just maybe finish by saying that next week the final evidence and the defense will lay their claims in the trial of Peter or de Vries. Oh. I think probably if nothing else his children Royce and Kelly appear to have his spirit by their, you know, their actions and how dignified they've been. And, and obviously that she has, Kelly has managed to see a bigger picture than just 
mm-hmm. their, the effects for themselves. And Marengo, when will it come to an end and when will we know if, if Taji is, is found guilty? Um, well, the, the, the final statements of the prosecutors will be held on, on the end of June. Then uh, we'll still be, uh, because of the complexity of the trial, one of the main suspects is uh, Saeed Razuki. He was in Colombia until uh, the end of last year. So he's only been here for six months. Uh, they still have to present and discuss evidence in his case. And then while they're doing that, after the summer break, um, the, the defendants and their lawyers will, uh, will put up their defense. That starts in October, I think. Uh, so I think um, by the time we're done, we're in 2023. And then the, the judges, they, they, will, they will take a number of months to, to write their, uh, their verdict. So if, if we end this before the summer of 2023, I think the judges and the, and the court will have done a really uh, good job at, 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 and a fast job. So it's possible that it, it won't be until September of October of 2023 that we'll, we'll hear the verdict. And that means that we're more than five years after the start of this trial. It shows you how big an, an, a big an effort and how complex this type of, of trial is. And, and I mean, this is a very, very, uh, I've never, I've never reported on, on, on a case like this before. And I doubt if I ever do it again. Um, but um, it shows you, you know, how complex this is. Well, in the meantime, Jan Mayas, thank you very much for your time today and keep the faith. Thank you. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com, produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe.